name's Bond. James Bond. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Grow up, 007. <laughs> this never happened to the other fellow. I'm the money. Every penny of it. So you put your money where your mouth is. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I'll do anything for a woman with a knife. Shocking, positively shocking. You get your clothes on, I'll buy you a nice trade. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Double Oz 7, a James Bond podcast that uh, has now covered two decades in the period of only a few weeks. Thank you for joining us. We're here to talk about the whole decade of the 70s, which we've finished uh, recapping. Uh, Roger Moore, one brief moment of Sean Connery. Get ready for 90 minutes of pigeon references all over again. <laughs> I am Colin Double Take Hilding. And I am Sheriff N.W. Pepper. And I am Ben O'Toole. And God, we've got to mention Moonraker <laughs> again in this episode, don't we? <sighs> Strangely enough, this is not the first time he's been referred to as Ben O'Toole. We just want to let everybody know that. <laughs> and it won't be the last. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're doing basically the same thing we did at the end of the 60s decade. So um, it's kind of appropriate, not just that it's the end of the decade, but an end of an era of Bond uh, as we get ready to enter the 80s. So just like we did last time, we'll go over some of the things that were very common in the 70s, our favorite moments of the 70s. And then a little bit of a preview of what will be coming in the 80s. Uh, why don't we start off just by, again, going over how the rewatch is going um, now that we've jumped from Honor Majesty's Secret Service to Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, is anything that much different than we expected? Uh, or how did you expect things to be going throughout the decade? And what are you finding differently now? I think... Um... When we first started, it was such an innocent time. Like, we were talking about the third James Bond film. Now we've done 11 films and a bunch of other episodes. So, like, we've talked about three different Bonds. We're getting into movies that aren't quite as good. It's not just the legendary early ones or anything like that. And we're seeing a lot of changes, but I'm still having just as much fun, though. It's so much fun, and arguably some of these not-quite-as-good ones or kookier ones are more fun to talk about than um, the more serious ones, although we've had good discussions with the serious ones too. But I'm just loving it, but I'm getting sad because we're very, very nearly approaching the midway point, and it feels like we've been doing this for only a few weeks, and soon it will be all over, at least for the film recaps anyway. But I'm loving it, and anticipating the new next one each time we do an episode so it's so much fun i think i found that when we started these we were all so like oh god they're so good like bond fantastic this was so classic and this is what started it and yay and then kind of in the 70s we've gone into <laughs> like one of us will be like this movie is so underrated it's so good it's so great you'll have somebody oh yeah no, it's not too bad there's good bits there's bad bits and then you'll get somebody oh this is so shit what the hell is this oh, this is terrible and i think that kind of sums up the 70s but um 
it's it's fun. I agree with everything that Noah said. It's kind of interesting to think that we're nearly at the halfway point. I mean, it just seems like we just talked about the 60s and we're like, oh, I can't wait to the 70s. Before long, we'll be like, going, oh, I can't wait for Daniel Craig, uh, said only one of us on this episode. Uh, but I, it's going to be... Um, <laughs> fascinating to look back on our thoughts on the 70s because like the decade uh, itself in history it's a decade that had many questionable things about it and some that have heavily influenced culture and others that you think what the fuck were they thinking yeah i i agree with both of you i think the 70s is very different from what we did in the 60s partly because the quality of the movies wasn't as strong and we definitely found that as we've gone through it. I think the movies that we agreed the most on were The Spy Who Loved Me and Man with a Golden Gun. And that was uh, pretty big extremes right there from one to the other. But uh, it is a very different decade. And I remember going into this, having an idea of some of the things that would be different. And so many things we didn't even consider that would really stand out about the 70s. Uh, we talked a lot about and the 70s is kind of marked, unfortunately, by being Guy Hamilton and Lewis Gilbert's decade. Uh, and we spent a long time talking about the flaws of both of those guys. But at the same time, I mean, I think overall the movies turned out to be more fun than I was expecting. And I definitely had uh, a turnaround on at least one movie in the 70s. But uh, overall, it's it's different. And I wouldn't say that it was less fun to talk about it or less fun to watch the movies, even though the movies themselves are not nearly to the quality that we had in the 60s. But that's what we love about James Bond, the glorified B-movies, so just because they're not high art uh, doesn't mean I love them less. That's exactly it, and you know, we all personally have our films that we will defend and that others will clearly dislike, and I think we had a big contrast to that with the films that bookended this decade. I mean, um, you know, Noah obviously absolutely loves his Diamonds Are Forever, and Colin didn't, and, you know, both of you sort of talked up a lot of Moonraker, and I really despise it, so I think it's a, it's a good thing to have that, because for the most part, we were very much on agreement on um, the 60s, and I think it's just, um, it's, it's such a great series, obviously, to talk about, hence why we're doing these podcasts. But, um, you know, obviously, I think the main part, too, is that it was dominated as well by a certain uh, Roger Moore. And um, I know personally that I grew a little bit more of an appreciation for the man. And that's obviously when he was a bit younger. But he's about to get really old. So maybe I'm just going to go away from him when we get into these 80s movies. I think um, sometimes it is, like, really great when we're all fangirling and we're all in love with the same thing. But I think at some points it's almost more fun when we have three different opinions or so one person loves it one person's in the middle one person doesn't really like it that much because it leads to more debate sometimes not good debates like uh tiffany case that debate probably went on a bit too long but (laughs) sometimes it it leads to better discussions although it's still fun when we all love and are in agreement as well though Well, that brings up another interesting point. I think that one of the things, as we said, that marked this decade as far as the podcast we did was the disagreements this time around. You mentioned Tiffany Case, their disagreements on Rosie Carver, um, disagreements (laughs) on Mary Goodnight, uh, disagreements on every Bond girl except for Goodhead, I guess. Um, (laughs) But... uh, uh, outside of the disagreements, or even including the disagreements, uh, do we have some favorite moments from the episodes we've done so far? Ooh, um, 
And then also, I think would be a good question is your favorite episode of the seventies, which for me would probably be Moonraker just because it was so hilarious because the film was so ridiculous. We had nothing to talk about plot wise. It was just <laughs> a real mess in a good way. Um, and Spy Love Me was a great discussion as well, more serious. Um, Favourite moments? I think, um, like, one day we might do, like, uh, 007 countdown, the top 10 controversial moments of the podcast. And <laughs> number one would be Noah Ranks, Diamonds Are Forever in first place. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's more an infamous moment rather than a famous moment, and I never seem to let that down, live that down. Um but, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. The 60s, we've lost a lot of the in-jokes. Like, we no longer have our, our Nicky Vanderzeels or our Spectre, Spectre, Spectre. Yeah. Um, times have changed, and we don't really have as many in-jokes uh, or recurring jokes, I should say. Every now and then we'll have bring something back up, um, and we'll have episode-specific ones like Char and Chang and all that. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I have particular favourite moments, just may, 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 mainly the funny ones that we talked about in Moonraker and that, where we just made jokes. Um, uh, I don't want to bring up uh, one that made me laugh was when Ben thought I was calling Dolly six, year, six years old, and he said, well, she's very well-developed for a six-year-old. Uh, <laughs> maybe a, a bad memory, not a good memory. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's all been good. Um, the the Rosie Carver stuff was quite funny as well. Um, so that was a good one. The Whisper discussion. <laughs> I'll never forget. You went to Shanbei. But, yeah, it's all been good. But I think for an episode, Moonraker was just so funny at how ridiculous everything was. Oh, and let's not forget Hulk. Hulk joins Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I feel... Like we are tooting our own horn a little bit, but I like the fact that we're talking about Moonraker because, guys, that was fucking hilarious. Let's be honest; like we are just comedic masters. <laughs> All jokes aside, like I had a lot of don't want to toot your own horn, but we're comedic, <laughs> comedic masters. Oh, <laughs> uh, you think of the greatest comedians in the history of the world, and um, we're up there. Uh, no, I, I we're not. There. I had a lot of fun on the Moonraker one. Um, I I had more fun, I think, doing the Moonraker episode than I did watching Moonraker. So, um, yeah, that that's a highlight. I, I like the Diamonds Are Forever one, too, just for the whole Tiffany Case debate and poor old me in the background just trying to strum up some love for Plenty O'Toole, which I think failed miserably. Um, <laughs> I loved all the discussion about J.W. Pepper. Um, how, who can forget our dear little elephant boy? Uh, in uh, <laughs> gun. And then, of course, to have... An elephant play, uh, playing the slot machines in Diamonds <laughs> Oh, goodness, yes. Those were the days. Um, and Genuine Felix life. <laughs> and honky, any honky talk. Um, yeah. Yeah, honky. Honky was great. Um, so many, but yeah, I don't think we can go past the Moonraker episode. Just uh, not only because it's fresh, but also because it's just... Yeah, I mean, it's just like the movie. It's just all over the place. And <laughs> yes... Moonraker, that wins. That wins the 70s to me. Uh, I'm not going to call myself a comedic 
master or whatever. Speak <laughs> for yourself. Person, but I'm going to say almost on the almost on the opposite. You know, we're all in agreement. The Moonraker episode was so much fun to do. And I think it was kind of anybody could have discussed that movie and laughed just as hard. Um, and that's not even to say that it's a bad movie. I personally think that Diamonds Are Forever has a lot more questionable moments. But there's just something about Moonraker where you have little things like you know, the gondola hovercraft and the pigeon double take. Um, Ben's giggle fits on the name, uh, <laughs> the name for good hair. And then, Chanting it's, just, it's one of those movies. It's just one of those movies where I think if you sit any three people down to watch Moonraker on their own, and then you get them to compare notes, I mean, you're all going to be in tears laughing because there's just so many hilarious moments in the movie. Uh, outside of Moonraker, like I, the funny thing is, all the other movies that we did, I remember thinking going in, "Oh, this will be a fun one to talk about. This one will be a fun one to talk about." And they all were, but Moonraker was the one where I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't know how this one's going to go. You know, there's some there's some very dull moments of the movie and nobody really seems to be in agreement and it was just it was just gold to talk about i just loved the moonraker episode next up let's talk about uh, our expectations i kind of mentioned earlier on how some of the things that i came into the 70s uh, assuming were different and uh how some things definitely lived up but we all kind of gave our expectations going in whether we mentioned on the air or not what are some of the things that we expected to really be common in the 70s that maybe changed or things that we now would look at and say, well, I didn't really label this decade correctly? Um, well, film specific, not even talking about all the little things. I think at the start of this, I really talked about live and let die. And that's kind of gone down a bit for me after the rewatch. Um, Diamonds Are Forever, I'm not sure what I would have said, was my second James Bond film uh, before this, even though I'd love it. Um, Spy Love Me is another one that I always knew I loved, but it wasn't until we were taking notes and everything like that that I really loved that one. Like, I want to watch it right now. Like Rewatching that, taking notes and talking about it really up to that one. And Moonraker, I've always been a Moonraker apologist, but I did agree that some bits were kind of lacking during that film when you're taking notes and doing a rewatch of it. Um, Man with the Golden Gun, I think I enjoyed it a bit more too, but I've always kind of seen that one as pretty good. Um, and Roger Moore, I wasn't sure what to expect with him because I've always been a Roger Moore fan, but then I worried, well, we're doing three-hour podcasts on each film and we're... Uh, writing notes, which I've never done with a James Bond film. Um, I have to say, I'm loving Roger Moore so much. He's gone up further than I even liked him before, and I was always a massive Roger Moore fan. I know Ben's opinion. I'm not entirely sure of Colin's opinion on Roger Moore, but I absolutely adore him after this rewatch. If anything, Sean Connery's kind of gone down a little bit. He's still brilliant. And Roger Moore's gone up a little bit. I just love every moment with him and his one-liners. But other than that, everything I expected from, like, all the little specifics are pretty much how they were. But, yeah, Roger Moore, some of the film changes, changes for me too. I guess I sort of mentioned it before in regards to bit more appreciation for Roger Moore. Um, I mean, it's been a while since I'd seen a lot of his earlier films and just, you know, experiencing him from the beginning and 
just seeing the different elements of the character that he brings across and, you know, saying that um, I think he's the best deliverer of one-liners and, you know, he's got the best facial expressions and there's just there's cl- a clear distinction between Roger Moore and Sean Connery, which, um, you know, is, I think, very apparent. And it's going to be interesting when it does come down to uh, eventually ranking the Bonds and how that will affect my opinion of him in the overall scheme of things. Um, for the movies themselves, um, you know, sort of anticipating the the camp factor of a lot of these films, I guess, compared to um, what I, I remembered. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it is really interesting to, as I said before, like the bookmarks of, of each end of the decade. Like, if you look at the 60s, you know, you have Dr. No and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You know, I mean, Honor Majesty's Secret Service um, regarded as, you know, top five, top three, best of all time. And then Dr. No, you know, the one that starts it off, which is generally, you know, sort of a middle-of-the-road film. Whereas if you look at the 70s, like, yeah, you've got films on either end of the decade that people love or hate. And it's just so interesting. I think it just, again, sums up the decade. But I think for me, more so with something like Moonraker, I mean, it's a film that, it again, as, as we talked about in that episode, it just keeps going down and down for me in terms of what it is. But... um you know, it's. I think mainly it's all about the Roger Moore and just how my opinions are changing on him. And it's just going to be interesting as we get into the first half of the 80s because I think, obviously, the 60s was all Sean Connery except for one film. The 70s is all Roger Moore except for one film. The 80s, we've got... We technically got three Bonds that we're going to have to talk about. So it's going to be a mix-up for, for big time for that one. So I think, really, it's kind of interesting how we're, we're leaving that two decades where it's just so dominated by one bond and how we can focus on that and just the development of moving into the 80s of how Roger Moore will go as he turns into a grandpa. Um, yeah, well, the other thing that's interesting is we're not really talking about Roger Moore's age despite the fact that he's well into his 50s. Maybe not well into his 50s, but he's into his 50s by the time this decade is over. And I think that's, again, where a lot of people mislabel Roger Moore. And I'm finding, you know, as you said, Ben, that your opinion is changing on Roger Moore. I always had a a solid opinion on Roger Moore. And I think outside of A View to a Kill, you know, I never really viewed him as being too old for Bond, Uh, particularly in the, the 70s. We should mention, I mean, he was older than Sean Connery was. When Sean Connery finished playing James Bond, Roger Moore was older than that when he started. But he had more youthfulness to him and more energy. And I would argue even in Moonraker, where he's, what, 51 years old where he did that, uh, nobody was talking about how old he was in Moonraker, really. Maybe a little bit older than Spyloft. But uh, Exactly, yeah. Like I, I think that there's a lot of criticism towards Roger Moore for his age and maybe for the overuse on comedy. And I kind of found in this decade it was very much the opposite. And I'll talk a little bit more about the comedy because as much as I love Roger Moore and I would never rank him as one of my favorite James Bond, but I also have never had a bad thing to say about Roger Moore, maybe outside of his age and a view to a kill, (laughs) but with the humor, that's what everybody's go-to answer is, is that, Oh, it's just too funny, too humorous. And I think that looking through the decade that had more to do with Guy Hamilton than anything else. And maybe a little bit with Lewis Gilbert, uh, Moonraker, but I, I was surprised that some of these movies really sitting down and analyzing it, that they were more serious than I remembered. I mean, Spy Who Loved Me, obviously, I think 
there weren't that many one-liners in that movie at all. And even Man with the Golden Gun, there were some really ridiculous moments, but that's a Guy Hamilton thing. I think that the way that Roger Moore played it was totally different. Uh, so I was surprised, even being somebody who's a fan of Roger Moore, that these ideas everybody has about him really don't hold up that well when you sit down and look at the movies closely enough. The biggest thing that changed for me in the 70s was Live and Let Die. And I've always ranked that, I said, like, at least in my bottom three, bottom four Bond movies. Um, and I think it's because there's certain parts of the movie where it definitely doesn't work, but we found the same thing in Moonraker, and uh, I found the same thing in Man with the Golden Gun, and I always was a bigger fan of those movies. Uh, with Live and Let Die, it really surprised me that the moments of the movie where the movie does work, that I was really enjoying it. And I've always been a huge... Uh, uh, criticizer of the climax of the movie, but I think that first half of the climax, when they're in the graveyard with Baron Samdi and there's the shootout, is just absolutely fantastic. I mean, I even considered putting that up for the Hall of Fame. So I've turned around a lot on Live and Let Die, and uh, looking at my rankings, I mean, I like I said, I always had that in my bottom four Bond movies, and it's not even in my bottom four of the first 11 that we've ranked right now. So it'll be interesting to see how much more that can hold up going throughout. Uh, you said, Noah, that you were a big Live and Let Die fan, and it, it took a bit of a hit for you. I was not a Live and Let Die fan at all, and it's kind of sitting around the middle for me right now. So, so I think that's really the only movie that really changed for me uh, was Live and Let Die, and you know, maybe some of the other ones, like Man with Golden Gun and Moonraker, took a bit of a hit for me, but... Live and Let Die is definitely my surprise for the whole decade. Next up, uh, we have the elements of the 70s. So we talked about this during the 60s, going into the 70s, that there were a lot of things that were going to change uh, with the, the camp of the movies and some of the innocence. You talked about Ben was gone, but uh, let's talk about both the elements of the 70s that we feel like do live on past the 70s and into the 80s and uh, also the elements that really are done after Moonraker. So um, what things are pretty much just exclusive to the 70s here, and then what things are introduced that really do live on? Uh, well, there's so many, so I'll just name a few, and then maybe Ben and you might have some. But um, one thing that I guess it was introduced in the 70s, but I could also make a strong case that it wasn't, is people think, oh, yeah, 70s, campy, goofy, kooky, uh, Bond. But I don't know, you only live twice and you put that up against Man with the Golden Gun. I don't see too much difference between them, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so even Goldfinger, like it's a Guy Hamilton film, it has a lot of camp and kook in it. So I'm not sure if that... Yeah, they upped it a lot, and a lot of that had to do with Roger Moore, but I don't know if that is an element introduced in the 70s as much as people say. Obviously, it's elevated a lot, but, yeah. Um, one thing that I keep coming back to is henchmen. Um, I feel when you watch these in order, you really see the development of the henchmen. The 60s had some great ones like um, Red Grant, uh, Bunt, the Freulein, um and Oddjob, of course. But they're all, besides Oddjob, like Red Grant, he's just an ordinary guy who escaped from prison. And Bunt's just a lady with a machine gun, um, an old granny like from Goldfinger. 
they're kind of just normal people who are a bit evil. Um, and let's not talk about Hans and Vargas um, and Dent. But <laughs> when you get to the 70s, you see all these this huge development in what a Bond henchman is. You start with Wint and Kid, like these kind of really creepy guys. Like they look a bit funny and look a bit odd. Uh, they're obviously gay and in a relationship and they're really sadistic and they're a pair of henchmen. And then you get to Living Let Die and you've got Tiki and he's got a metal claw and he's really comical and um, Baron Samity is just this enigma and then uh, Whisper, um, <laughs> who let's not talk about Whisper. And then uh, what's next? you got got uh, Nicknack, who's just completely like no other henchman we've had up to that point. And then we get Jaws after that, um, who's just this massive tall guy with steel teeth. Like, this is kind of the era of the really insane and kooky henchmen that I don't think existed as much in the 60s. And in turn, that also extends to the other question of what stayed in the 70s. And, yeah, we still had some great henchmen after that. Like, we've got Xenia and Mayday and stuff like that. But... After Jaws, that's kind of really the end of the really insane, psycho, kooky, like, deformity henchmen after that. So I think that's something that lived in the 70s and kind of, in a way, stayed, which is upsetting because I love all those henchmen so much. And I also think that took a toll on the villains. Um, One thing that the 60s have was they were based on the books, and the 70s, they strayed away a lot from the books, and that kind of took a hit with... um, people like Stromberg and Drax is great, but he's no Goldfinger or Dr. No and stuff like that. So I feel like the villains took a hit while the henchmen took a rise and we're no longer talking about the the books as much. So that's just a little food for thought. Maybe Ben can pick up on some things that I forgot about. Well, the two that I would really point out, and I guess it comes to playing up with the times, really, and sort of adapting to things that were happening at, at you know during the seventies. One, I'll point out the Bond girl. Um, you know, obviously the seventies was a real time for women's rights and sort of you know um, liberation for the, you know that sort of side of things. And I feel they tried to put that across with sort of more Bond women becoming more equal or at least attempting to become more equal with Bond. Um, Obviously, we had that with Anya. They attempted it with Holly Goodhead, but please. Um, You know, and I mean, even someone like Tiffany, you could almost argue slightly there was (laughs) something... Tiffany! Tiffany! um, That was slightly there. But um, I I think it was sort of really started to come and we see a lot more of that moving forward, of course. Um, And the other one... I think is is key is that you know at least three of these films in the seventies have really gone out to adapt with what is kind of the in thing in the world and movies and things like that. Obviously, with Live and Let Die, it was sort of black black exploitation. Man with the Golden Gun, they went for the whole kung fu side of things, and of course, Moonraker, the big standout one. I mean, we had this massive, you know, um, Star Wars takeover and the blockbuster, and here comes Moonraker. And I think a lot of that comes also down to things like film budgets and you know coming across it. I mean, you know, Goldfinger was a blockbuster, Thunderball was a blockbuster in terms of the budgets at the time, but for Moonraker, of course, you know, I mean, this came out and basically combined all the budgets for Bond films and said, right, this is what we're going to do. Um, and I just think they're sort of two main ones moving forward with it that it comes with. And I agree with you, though, Now, what you said about the campy factor is that, yeah, I can see why people argue that was a 70s trope, but 
you know, you only live twice. I mean, come on, like, that really went out with the campy factor. Um, and, yeah, I think it sort of was more so that moving forward with it. And I also think, too, one thing we should maybe mention, too, which maybe I'm stealing this away from Colin, is the stunts. Like, they always tried to outdo themselves in each film with the stunts. And I think the 70s was the decade that they went big and bold and huge with it. Um, and I think we're fairly successful with every stunt they did, just maybe not with the sound effects they included with them. <laughs> Would you argue that the whole... Um keeping up with the times for the film is something that continued on, or do you think that's a 70s thing? Um, I'm thinking of movies like Licence to Kill. And, um, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, but Licence yeah, to, to Kill was that one exception. And I think you could also maybe make a little case for Living Daylights was very, like, Indiana Jones-inspired in some I points. Think, yeah, um, you've got... I th- even Casino Royale was a bit borny. But I, th- I also think, yeah, I can see that, and I, I think... It's more a 70s thing, but yeah, I agree with you. Like, definitely License Kill, Living Daylights. Um, yeah, Borny, I see that. Um, you know, Dying of the Day sort of had to incorporate elements post 9-11, you know, which... Um, oh, don't talk about Dying of the Day and Keeping Up with the Times. No, it Hello, was... Madonna. It was... I was actually trying <laughs> That's to... That's an in-joke. Very in-joke. But, like, I think it's important that, you know, that... I mean, we'll obviously talk about that when we get to the film, but you know, that would have changed certainly things how they did there. So, there, there of course, are always going to be elements like that in Bond films, but I would probably say the 70s out of any decade did it the most. Yeah, I, I don't have too much to add on this, um, but to elaborate a little bit, I, I do agree that the keeping up with the times, there are moments where they do that, but I think any film series is going to have it. I think the 70s really stands out because they group that together with genres of movies. And I think that also just has to do with how big the shift in everything was from the 60s. I mean, anybody who just looks at history, just look at how drastic the shift is from the mid-60s to the late 60s and then the late 60s to the early 70s. I mean, everything goes so extreme. And movies obviously were a big part of that. So they were able to both follow through with the the changes in the times with you know uh just society itself and the movies because suddenly you have the black exploitation genre come up and you have the kung fu genre and there really weren't new genres of movies you know after the the sci-fi uh boom in the late 70s there's nothing like that in the 80s um, I always kind of looked at the 80s as being its own decade just simply because John Glenn did every single movie in the decades, which we never had before. But to be perfectly honest, I mean, that didn't really change the 70s at all. Guy Hamilton did three movies in the 70s, and all of them are very different. Louis Gilbert did two movies in the 70s, and they're both very different. Um, I think that they were just trying something new every time in the 70s. And in the 80s, maybe they just wanted to have a little bit of continuity again and they wanted the movies to feel the same because I would argue even going from View to a Kill to Living Daylights there are two totally different movies Bond is totally different not just the actor but how it's portrayed but uh, it still feels like the two movies can belong together Um, the only other thing as you said about the stunts is that uh, the, the stunts was something that came in in the 70s and I think they definitely did continue that after this in the 80s. It just wasn't as obvious, I think, maybe because other movies had started to do it at that point. 
but you know, when we get into free eyes only and octopusy and a view to a kill, you know, we'll have massive stunts to talk about, not to the level that we had in the seventies where every single time it was more done for publicity than anything else. And, and let's break a world record, but they were still trying very new things that had never been done before. So uh, I, I think that that's something that does continue past the seventies. Um, do we have any, let's just quickly go around any behind the scenes stuff, history or trivia throughout the decade that maybe we didn't get to cover that we want to cover. And if not, we'll just cut this bit completely. <laughs> uh, I don't really have anything too much to add. I think we had a good job covering things. Um, I just like the story that with the tanker and the spy love me is that, um, they were going to use a real ship and then they asked how much it would cost and it was like a lot of money each day for insurance. So they said, oh, let's build our own massive set and then that in turn ended up being the biggest set in Bond history, I believe, just because they didn't want to pay the price to use a real ship, which is kind of cool. Like, oh, we'll just do it ourselves. Um, but, yeah, not too much to add on the behind-the-scenes stuff. I think we covered a lot in the films. Yeah, I'd be the same as Noah. I mean, I found it interesting, like, as you were just saying, Colin, a moment ago with the stunts, sort of some of them were world records, and they went along with that. Um, and obviously, like, in Moonraker, how there's still a couple of records to this day that still stand with the glass-breaking scene and the um, space zero-gravity wires. So I found them to be uh, quite interesting. Um other than that, I guess if we went wait right back to the beginning of the decade, you know, sort of moments of why Sean Connery came back for Diamonds Are Forever um, and sort of elements to do with that. Um, but, yeah, there's not a real lot that I can't think of right now that we didn't talk about in each of the episodes. I don't remember how much detail we went into with uh, the breakup of the Broccoli Saltzman relationship, mm. but... Uh, uh, yeah. One thing that should be mentioned, I mean, it was pretty much necessary because Saltzman had gotten himself into some financial trouble. But a thing that doesn't often get talked about is how they had a falling out because of that. And it wasn't because, you know, Broccoli, you know, bought him out or anything. I mean, Saltzman knew he had to be bought. It was just, it was such a painful thing for Saltzman to let go of Bond that, you know, he had a hard time even talking to Broccoli for years. And, you know, they eventually did reconcile, and you know, there's lots of great footage and pictures of Stoltzman even tending Bond premieres later on. Um, so, uh, one of these days, I would love to see just a, a biography on Harry Stoltzman, just to yeah. see you know, how this whole period was handled by That's him. That's It's a bit of a really tragic story. Under talked about, and at the same time, you know, there's the Sean Connery thing, which. Uh, we all kind of know the story about him coming back for Diamonds Are Forever, but. Um, after that, you know, in the 70s, there were several attempts made between him and Kevin McClory to do Bond again. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons why The Spy Who Loved Me turned out to be so big in comparison to the previous ones and so good. It was a lot, I think, to do with the fact that Kevin McClory was getting ready to make. Like, his rights were that he couldn't do anything for 10 years after Thunderball came out, but he was allowed to as of 75. So I think that how they upped everything in Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and the increase in the budgets and all that probably had a lot to do with the fact that Kevin McClure was out there trying to compete with them, which he'll eventually succeed in when we get to the 80s. Well, that's a big reason why there was a three-year gap as well, because 
Live and Let Die, Man with the Golden Gun came out one year apart, if I'm right. Um, and then we had a three-year gap was... I'm not sure if we even brought it up in the episode that Blofeld was supposed to be the villain instead of Stromberg. And perhaps that's the reason why Stromberg is so dull. Um, but then, obviously, all that trouble came apart about with uh, Kevin McClory, and that led to a three-year gap, and that led to uh, Guy Hamilton leaving. He was supposed to direct that. Um, so I'm not sure if we brought all this up, but that is a huge reason why there was a three-year gap, because... That's the longest gap in until uh, License to Kill and Goldeneye, I believe. So that really explains why it took so long and why it's by Love Me is such a good film. And just one thing I'll quickly add as well is with that three-year gap and, you know, how close, I guess, Bond maybe came to ending in the 70s. I mean, The Man with the Golden Gun did a lot of damage to it and there was a lot of talk that that was it. And then obviously The Spy Love Me came and saved it, really. Um, and then... You know, I mean, even if you look at Moonraker, which, you know, if you put the critical reception aside, obviously very mixed opinions of it, and still to this day it's that case, but, like, that came out with such force, as I was mentioning, with the the, the budget, but then just the, the ticket returns on that. I mean, it stood as the most successful Bond film, you know, for 16 years until Goldeneye came out. So it's a, it's a decade of contrasting... Um, things when it comes to the successes of the films and you know again very nearly could have ended in 1975 uh, or 1974 whatever year it was with Man with a Golden Gun the only other thing I really want to bring up and it's it's not so much a trivia but more I think a, a misconception is we didn't get to talk about a Moonraker but there's so much talk about oh well they were capitalizing on Star Wars um, it, it was all because of Star Wars and there's definitely something to the whole, not just Star Wars, but the science fiction boom of the late 70s. You know, we didn't even get a chance to mention that the uh, the audio code that they enter to get in is the theme from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that's yeah, used yeah. in the movie. But the one thing that doesn't often get talked up is the fact that, as we said, Star Wars and the whole laser battle factors into only a few minutes of the movie the majority of this movie was more capitalizing again on NASA. You know, we, we look back at you only look twice and we say this was really capitalizing on the space race and the moon race. And right at the exact same time Moonraker's coming out, NASA is about to launch, you know, their fleet of space shuttles, which had never been used before. Mm. Uh, up until now, there had never been a shuttle that could return to Earth. And Moonraker directly copied this, uh, not just in how the shuttles function, but the uh, the look of the shuttles are exactly the same and the time that they were made public and announced and started being used completely coincides with Moonraker so uh, I think that between Star Wars and that there definitely was an effort made to if you want to say keep up with the times but I actually think if you look at the movie as a whole it's more heavily influenced by what was going on with NASA at the time than it was with Star Wars and so we look forward to, to the superhero Bond film coming out in 2017. <laughs> yeah. When Bond puts on a cape, it's it's. I knew we were talking about the Hulk for some reason. <laughs> yeah, Bond in spandex. Uh, <laughs> we'll jump into the second half of our episode here, where we're going to cover all of our favorites of the staples of the Bond series. So the first one we should cover, and we did talk about how there was a main major shift in the Bond girls. I don't know if it was for the better or worse, but I am going to go on record and say, from my opinion, that they they were trying to do something different. And I think some of it hit and some of it missed, but they were making a real effort 
to keep up with the times and to make the Bond girls different. Uh, but overall, throughout the the decade, uh, what's everybody's favorite of the main Bond girls? Uh, yeah, so we're talking Tiffany. Who else have we got? Uh, Not Rosie. Mary, uh, Anya and Holly. <laughs> Is that all of them? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me. I think it's for the worst. I think 70s takes a hit in Bond Girls and actually probably every decade from here on out is not as good as the 60s, but that's something to keep an eye out for. Um, hell no for Mary. Um, definitely not Solitaire. I was not a Solitaire fan. I will still defend Goodhead, but she was quite bland. Um, <laughs> you know my love for Tiffany. Um and I will keep defending her, but I think Anya, Agent Triple X, I think I just love her story arc and in her involvement in the film. And she's the spy, love me. Uh, let's not get into the debate on the title again. But <laughs> Anya, people people criticize her for her acting, but I just love everything about that character so much. Um, yeah, as I brought it up in sort of the changes with the, what they try to do with the, the Bond women, definitely hit and miss with a lot of them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting sort of moving forward though, looking at the decades to come in regards to whether that works with the women. Cause I definitely think we have at least one decade where it really works. But anyway, um, yeah, look, Anya definitely is a standout. Holly is the worst by far. Not even going to talk about her anymore. Um, but I'm going to give some love out there for solitaire. Um, I, really? well, She's pretty bland. I didn't know you loved her. She's bland in the scheme of things, but I think she's probably the most attractive. She's there's just a quality about you know how she has this power, or does she? And then you know she loses her virginity, and then it's gone. And I don't know. There's just something about that aspect of it that I enjoy, and also probably stealing Colin's love here, but Mary, good night. Um, <laughs> I love Mary. Um, <laughs> But if I had to choose one, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to throw some love out to to Solitaire. Um, I'm going with Goodnight hands down. And one of my biggest arguments in favor of Goodnight, I'm going to make an argument for right now on just the Bond girls in general because I think that again, people they want to look at these older decades from the point of view of where we're at now. Well why don't you look at it from the point of view of where they were at at the time? And it's so easy to say, well, the Bond girls were all kind of, you know, useless in the seventies, but in comparison to what we saw in the sixties, they were doing a lot more and they were more involved. And we had several who were real agents. Hmm. And then there's the argument. It's like, well, they're dumb. And I won't even get into again, the arguments of how Mary Goodnight wasn't dumb. Cause if you're going to compare anybody to be dumb, I mean, Bond was dumber in most of these movies than Goodnight was, but the biggest misconception people have is that the bond girls are minimalized and they're not at all what, what i really meant when i said that they did something different with the bond girls is the fact that they allowed actresses to really shine in this decade and some of them weren't the best actresses in the world you know uh jane seymour had not a lot of experience yet uh um we can look at i guess all of them i would say and say not a lot of them had a lot of experience but in the 60s, the Bond girls, maybe they had slightly more complex characters. That's simply because you're using Ian Fleming. And Ian Fleming was, despite what most people think, really good at writing female characters. But the actresses were all voiced by Nikki Vanderzil, and they were mostly <laughs> beauty queens and models, and they were picked for their appearance. 
here you have actresses that are allowed to play the whole part and they're given something to do. And uh, I'll make the same argument again. Just because Goodnight is comic relief in the movie doesn't mean that it wasn't a good role to play. I don't know why people can look at another spy movie like True Lies and look at Tom Arnold, who's just the goofy comic relief, and say he stole the show. But you get Britt Eklund in there and it's a woman this time around and she's a comic relief and she's very good at the comedy and suddenly oh she's just a dumb bond girl mm. um i think that's a huge misconception good people call. have and good i call. really hope that people can yeah i really hope that people can look at this and say if you're the comic relief it doesn't necessarily make you dumb it means that you're set up as a scene stealer and i don't think anybody played the comedy better than brit eklund um i've always been a huge fan of her i might even come out of this whole series ranking her as one of my favorite Bond girls just because I think her performance shine more than anybody else's. And I, I do love the character too. I think she's just a fun character. So she's easily my pick. Uh, we don't want to get into this debate, but I think you've defended Mary Goodnight's actions very well. But I do think the ditziness of the character is a lot of why people perceive her as dumb. But we're going to do a Bond girl episode eventually. Um... All right. All right. Let's talk about the best secondary girl. Um, so we've got Ben's favourite, Plenty. Um, we've got Colin's favourite, Rosie. Um, you're really left out in this one because you two have your favourite ones with Plenty and Rosie. Um, Man with the Golden Gun, we've got Andrea and Chew Me, uh, if you count her. <laughs> so I Love Me, bizarrely, doesn't have one. And... Uh, Moonraker, we had Corinne well, DeFore and... Oh, Naomi. <laughs> yes. Corinne DeFore and uh, Manuela Disappearer. Um, <laughs> so, Ben, secondary girls. Well, you know Plenty of Tools. I think I know you're at. Well, Plenty of Tools going to win this. I'll come back to her. But I've got to give a shout-out to Naomi. I love Naomi. How could you not put her in the conversation? <laughs> like, oh, she's lots to look she's at. more of a henchwoman. She's just amazing and... I love her. A uh, special shout out to random girl Bond sleeps with in Austria and the spy who loved me in the cabin for <laughs> so does England. Um, <laughs> sexual conquest. Um, fuck Rosie Carver. I just want to put that in again. <laughs> um, no, no, no. But oh, my girl, plenty. Like she's gorgeous. She's bright. She's bubbly. She's amazing. She she's was bright. Named after a mother. <laughs> All she wanted to do was have a bit of fun with Bond. She went for I sure hope she's not named after her mother with plenty of tools. <laughs> Flew out the window and survived before eventually getting drowned in a pool anyway. Like, we were robbed of more plenty. Lana Wood, if you're listening, I don't actually know if you're still alive. I hope you are. Um, give me a call because you are amazing. I love you. I love you plenty. Um, my choice is obvious, Rosie Carver, and I know there's everybody out there is laughing at me, but again, for the same reason, I think she was a fun character. There was a lot to her. I mean, I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but, and I don't mean this the way it sounds, but she had more complexity to her character, uh, <laughs> simply because she's, Rosie she Carver had complexity. As, well, look at it this way. She starts You're off as... You're uh, in James Bond opinion this <laughs> Let me finish. Hold on. She starts out as this 
kind of inexperienced, nervous agent, and, and she you know, then she has some fun moments. Well, no, and then you find out that she is being played by Kananga the whole time, and she's very conflicted because she's believing these stories as most everybody else is. I mean, there's, whether or not she's a complex character, that's not really what I meant, but more that there's it covers a lot of ground with her character. So the character on its own, whatever you think of the actress or how the writing was, the character itself has a purpose. Plenty is in the movie if you add up her screen time for less than two minutes, and uh, the movie could exist without her. Naomi, you could say the same thing. Um, I think the only other one that really could come close would be Andrea, who I, I will say is a fantastic character, and Maude Adams probably was played the only serious secondary bond girl, but I still love Rosie Carver. I think that she's just a really fun character. And I think that Gloria Henry, the actress just played it with a lot of life. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of the odd one out here. Cause I don't have a favorite secondary one of the seventies. Um, shout out to plenty for what is this? A pervert's convention. Cause <laughs> uh, pervert's convention is just hilarious. She says that to um, me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so shout out to her. Um, I don't hate Rosie as much as Ben, but I certainly don't love her as much as Colin. Uh, <laughs> it's just come on, Rosie Carver, like get with the program. Um, yeah, Corinne's okay. Manuela, as I said, Manuela disappear because she just pissed off halfway through. Um, so I think for me, I'm going to have to go with Andrea just because. She's a little bland, but I do like her character and how she is serious and how she's the one who gave the, the bullet with Bond's name on it to lure him in to kill Scaramanga. So I like that kind of plot twist. So I'll go with Andrea Anders. Okay. Well, we move into... I'm going to group these two together, um, even though we obviously can talk a lot about each one. Uh, best villain, best henchman. We had some... Fairly decent villains. I think, Noah, you sort of summarised a little bit more that we had maybe better henchmen this decade. But, um, yeah, what, what's our take on the villainous villains and the villainous henchmen? I, I don't think there's anybody who touches the villain as far as Scaramanga goes. Um, I'm going to be interested again seeing if my opinions change at the end of this, but Scaramanga was always, growing up, my very favourite villain, even knowing that The Man with the Golden Gun wasn't the best movie. Christopher Lee is just amazing. There's nobody in the world who's better at playing a villain than him. And everybody can dump all over Man with a Golden Gun is having a few goofy moments, slide whistles and laxatives or whatever. But Scaramanga is very intimidating. He's a very scary villain and he plays it completely straight. Even with a third nipple, there is nothing goofy about the man. <laughs> nobody touches him. We're talking 60s and 70s. As far as henchmen goes, I would love to stay Jaws, and it has nothing to do with Moonraker for why I won't, but I, I again, defended Nick Knack a lot in The Man with the Golden Gun, and for the same reason, that in a goofy movie, and for a Guy Hamilton movie to be handling a character like Nick Knack and not make it a joke, I mean, that, that took a lot, and Nick Knack is, in my opinion, I think even the scariest of the henchmen, even over Jaws, because... You look at the size of Jaws and the size of Knickknack, and then you look at their actions, and Knickknack just has this really sadistic nature to him. Um, and even the fight at the end, you know, I think I was the only one who was really saying that it wasn't kind of goofy. I, I think Knickknack throwing stuff everywhere is a terrifying idea. 
you know, he's lunging at people with knives. I mean, Knickknack is amazing. Um, I, I love him even more than Jaws. Yeah, the main villains aren't that exciting. It's definitely not going to be Charles Gray's Blofeld. Um, Kananga, I wasn't the biggest fan of. Um, Stromberg, shoot him in the dick. Um, Drax. <laughs> Drax is fun, but in the grand scheme of things, isn't that great. I have to agree with Colin Scaramanga. He's such a unique villain, such a cool villain. I like the bond equalness. He's down to earth. And he's a character while also being really sinister. So I think by default it has to be Scaramanga. For henchmen, I want to give a massive shout-out to Winton Kidd. For me, they're easily top ten henchmen. Um, a uh, dishonourable mention to Whisper. Dishonourable mention to Sandor. Um, <laughs> I can't even think of other, the other shit ones. Um Moonraker, Dishonourable Mention. I don't know how we've got through this episode without mentioning Chang slash Char. Um, massive Dishonourable Mention to Char. Um, yeah, Nick Knack's great. I think you have to have Jaws, but I was very critical of Moonraker Jaws. So I'm going to say Spy Who Loved Me Jaws when he's just epic. I think, yeah, I love Nick Knack. I love Baron Samity. I love... Uh, Tiki and I love Winter Kid, but Jaws is just the quintessential henchman. Um, I'll, we'll have a three uh, prong agreements here on Scaramanga. Um, I will give a special nod up again to Drax, even though I dislike the film. Again, there's just something about the guy that just I like. So go Drax, um, get fucked, Stromberg. Like no, just get shot in the dick. <laughs> Seriously, man, that's just no. Um, yeah, henchman. Um, I have to go with Jaws as well for the main one. Um, but I want to give special props to Tehe and also Nick Knack. I, I I love Tehe. I love his his claw and just how he is and just the whole thing with the crocodile scene is just fantastic. Um, I also love Baron Samity from a film that I don't necessarily like too much. It's you know. It's, they've got great henchmen. I also am fans of Winton Kidd. Um, you know, they're just they're sadistic and just their little play on each other, the way they sort of communicate and just interact is fantastic. Um, and also Nick Knack, just fucking love the guy. Um, he's just awesome, and I agree with everything that Colin said. Uh, special shout-out to Cab Driver and his honkies in Live and Let Die, um, if we count him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's go with Jaws all the way. Um, he's got to be not only for this decade, but I still feel Jaws is number one of all time. Well, yeah, number one of all time. Got to be. Next up on the opposite end would be Bond's allies. So there's a lot to cover in here. I mean, I can't even remember all of them, but if we're starting at the beginning, you would count. Obviously we have a couple of Felix lighters. Uh, (laughs) Willard White would be one, um, Lieutenant Hip, Lieutenant Hip's nieces, uh, Coral Jr., um, Commander Carter, the the submarine captain in Spy Who Loved Me, Manuela would count in this one, so uh, favorite ally overall. Yeah, not quite the esteemed bunch from uh, Quarrel and Karam and Draco and Tiger, is it? Um, yeah, I, this is not the era for good allies. Um, 
So I think I'll have to go with, well, for a Felix, I'll say, I think we have to do a Felix separate. And for Felix, I'll say David Henderson's Felix. But if I had to pick another one, I loved Harold Strutter, but he was in like four minutes of the film. You're probably going to have to go with Willard White because Baha! Um, <laughs> I love that. And I love uh, Bert Saxby. Tell him he's fired. So, uh, yeah, probably go with Willard White. I think he's an underrated Bond ally. Yeah, this decade's actually shit for allies. <laughs> like, he's shit. Um, <laughs> I, I, That's one way to put it. Look. Oh, Quarrel Jr., like, <laughs> him or JW, no. like, does JW count? Oh, yeah, JW, I can't believe we've Oh, I guess JW counts. Does he count? Um, God, I can't believe we're yeah, going to put him at the top of a list here that isn't just <laughs> shit. Um, oh, fuck, flip a coin. JW, look, give him some love. Sorry, Quarrel Jr., Ah, you didn't get chosen. Uh, <laughs> J.W. Pepper, just because he is the man with the one-liners and is just an annoying piece of shit. But in a decade that was just terrible for allies, um, I really have no other option. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not the strongest. Uh, I will agree that Willard White was one of the stronger things in Diamonds of Forever. I'm going to say as far as the Felixes go... I think both of the Felixes that we had in the 70s were pretty good, um, but they're not Jack Lord, let's be honest. I already mentioned how I say that, you know, if, if, if we're calling anybody dumb in the man with a golden gun, Bond's dumber than good knight. Lieutenant Hip is maybe the dumbest character in the history of James <laughs> Bond. I mean, he, he shows up to rescue Driving Bond with his nieces in the car and drives off without him for no reason whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Hip is the dumbest character in the history of James Bond. For me, I think the obvious choice would be, and it's not just because the actor Shane Rimmer was in Star Wars and Superman and everything, but uh, Captain or Commander Carter from the the Spy Who Loved Me, the Submarine Captain. I think that he had the most to play off of with Bond, and it was kind of just a different dynamic. It wasn't an equal like Felix Leiter was, or some inexperienced agent who's babysitting him like uh, Manuela or uh, some billionaire like Willard White. I mean, it was somebody who had a bit of authority over Bond, you know, being in the whole Navy thing. And they, they kind of had this interesting rapport between them where they were, they were equals in a way just from the, the whole Naval experience. And I love the scene where they're arguing over, you know, when they're going to blow up Atlantis. And again, just to see, somebody actually hold their own debating against James Bond and the whole 40 minute, one hour thing was fun. So uh, I, I like Captain Carter. I think that he holds up with some of the better ones from the sixties. Not, not really anybody else from the seventies can. Would, would we count um, Gogol as a ally or is he a villain? He's from Russia. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, he's throughout the entire series. He's kind of on and off. I mean, we'll get into it with free your eyes only is that you could view him uh, one way in that and another way in another movie. But, yeah, I don't know if I'd necessarily call him an ally. Technically, you could call Jaws an ally in Moonraker. Uh, he saves the day. <laughs> Dolly's an ally. Oh, Dolly, she's my favourite secondary girl. Uh, yeah, favourite child in Bond. 
Dom. Six-year-old. <laughs> Favourite six-year-old with boobs. <laughs> All right, let's move on and let's talk about the best pre-title sequence. Um, so, obviously, what happens before the song plays. Uh, this is quite a strong decade for pre-title sequence. Um, well, Diamonds Are Forever is just mad Sean Connery. Um putting people into mud and, you know, thinking he's killed people and we're, we're getting into that debate again. Did he die? Did he drown in the mud? Um, live and Let Die was just um, random UN people getting killed um, and snake bites that don't actually bite. Um, Man with the Golden Gun, we obviously had the Fun House. Spy Who Loved Me, we had the... Um, Obviously, the iconic one, and then Moonraker. It's a toss-up between Moonraker and Spy Who Loved Me. Um, I think Spy Who Loved Me has got to take the cake purely on the basis that, as when we talked in that episode, I think the two most iconic scenes in the history of James Bond is the you expect me to talk, no, Mr. Bonner, and also the jumping off the cliff with the um, parachute of the Union Jack. So, for that and that alone, I'm giving it to the Spy Who Loved Me. Um... I don't like Diamonds of Forever. I usually have to take at least 10 seconds to remember what the Diamonds of Forever pre-titles are, and I can remember everything else in the movie. Cairo! With Live and Let Die. <laughs> <laughs> Live and Let Die, I have already said I'm a huge fan of the opening credits, despite it not having Bond and just being the random scenes. I think it's the best collection of random scenes. You know, the, the sound effect and the murder of the UN guy is good. The, the snake thing is fantastic. Just there's so much energy there with the whole sacrifice and also the fact that he really did pass out and the jazz funeral is amazing. So I really do love live and let die man with a golden gun because they just repeat the same thing later on. I don't think the location is as good. Uh, Spy who let me has the stunt, but outside of the stunt, I don't know if the pre-title scene is as interesting. You know, it's kind of just, you'll live twice over again, but being honest, even though I think the stunt is uh, better as a whole sequence with the skydiving in Moonraker, I think The Spy Love Me does such a good job of setting up the plot of the movie that uh, even without the stunt, I think it can stand on its own. It's not the most original, but the, you put the stunt on top of that, and that definitely is the winner. Uh, I have to agree. It's another triple one here, Spy Love Me. I love Moonraker's one, but Spy Love Me, not only does it set up the plot and we've got an amazing stunt, but we've also got the uh, kind of sub-story, subplot with Anya's boyfriend, George Lazenby, there. And we've also got some classic quotes like, but I need you, well, so does England. Um, <laughs> and there was another another quote, what was it when he, Money, Penny and Emma talking and then it cuts to Bond like, He's just finishing a job. Or I can't even remember. Um, Tell him to pull and, out. Yeah, pull out. That's it. So you've got that and then England needs me and you've got the ski chase and Anna's boyfriend and the amazing stunt leading into great t- title sequences with the hands um, and the introduction of Gogol and you've got the comparisons between Anne's office and Gogol's office and Anya in bed and Bond in bed. There's just so much in there. So Honourable mentioned a Moonraker, but it has to go with Spy Love Me. Now, of course, pre-title sequence leads us into title sequence and song. And 
<laughs> lot to choose from here, and um, obviously in regards to the song, we've got a bit of Shirley, we've got a bit of Paul, got a bit of Lulu, um, got a bit, <laughs> a bit of Carly, and a bit of Shirley again. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's talk about our title and song. So it's a strong decade. Yeah, I think for the songs, it's a strong decade. Not so much the title sequences. We complained a lot about most of these being generic and not making any sense. Um, I think there's an obvious answer for both of these, and that's The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, Nobody Does It Better is so iconic. And again, if we're talking about keeping up with the times, with the the music goes, (laughs) it definitely felt like a 70s song, but it still felt like a Bond song which we won't see so much in a couple of decades. Uh, and the title sequence is amazing. You know, there's so much going on in it, but it all ties together. You know, you got a lot of the, the patriotism in there with the British flag and the, the soldiers. Uh, Spy Love Me is just amazing. I think the only other one that would come close would be Live and Let Die, which, again, the, the song is probably just as iconic and better at keeping up with the times than something we'll find out later on. But the title sequence has so much energy to it, too, with the skulls and the eyeballs and everything. So I wouldn't really even consider it close between the two. I think Live and Let Die is a good honorable mention, but Spy Love Me, again, all the way. Uh, for me, I think, yeah, the songs were great. I'm a big fan of Diamonds Are Forever. Um, Moonraker can really go to hell. Uh, even the disco version, <laughs> they both suck. Um, uh, I think you guys have sold me on Man with the Golden Gun just because of how... Yay. Mad it is in the next room on this very one. <laughs> it's just, it's fun to laugh at. Um, yeah. For me, other than nobody does it better, that version, uh, I think it has to be Live and Let Die. It's just the one Bond song that I actually listen to on its own. Well, maybe not the one, but the one I listen to the most unrelated to Bond. It's just an amazing song. The way it's implemented into the film is so good and they use it in so many different ways. So I think for the song, it has to be Live and Let Die, but huge honourable mention to Nobody Does It Better. And for the title sequence, it has to be The Spy Love Me. Just there's so much going on here. The Russian girl's being knocked over, bouncing on a trampoline. and She's walking on a luger, a giant luger. Um, Bit of bush. video with- yeah, a bit of bush, missed it. Um, <laughs> everything in that title sequence, it just makes me so happy to be a Bond fan watching that title sequence, and it's probably the best in the history of the movies, perhaps. So live and let die for the song, Spy Love Me for the title sequence. going to say it once again, I probably would argue the 70s is the best decade for songs. To me, that mixed with the 90s. Don't jump down my throat. Um, but... Yeah, there's only one weak song in the entire decade. That is Moonraker. Um, but, every you know, Dimes Are Forever, great song. Live and Let Die, fantastic song. Man with a Golden Gun, yay, we're selling Noah. Spy Who Loved Me, so fucking amazing. Song, hands down, um, nobody does it better. Just nothing can even remotely come close. And this is in a decade with Live and Fucking Let Die in it. Um... For title sequence, yeah, I agree with Spy Who Loved Me, but I want to give a special shout-out to Live and Let Die... I do love the whole um, the transformation into the skull and how it really plays in with the music and how they sort of um, yeah. t- 
tie it in with the graphics on screen. So that's a close second, but yeah, it's a pretty shit decade in terms of title sequences. Dishonorable mention to flying. Well, s- naked Superman. Well, yeah, I was about to say that. Dishonorable, glittery ball. dishonorable <laughs> mention to naked <laughs> super flying girl and flashing lights, and also dishonorable mention to cat wearing a diamond. Um, we have also Q. Q was definitely more prominent in this decade than he was in the last one. And every movie had, I think, multiple Q scenes as opposed to just the one. Uh, so let's go with uh, our favorite Q scene. And if we're doing Q scene, we also have to go with the best gadget of the decade. Well, yeah, that's something we should talk about in the 70s. This was the rise of Q being a prominent figure. And it was also the decline of Money Penny having anything to do with anything in the film. Um, so yeah, Q's in a lot. I'm just trying to think. Uh, I still love him gambling and rigging the machines, is so much fun. Um, I love Man with the Golden Gun. Shut up, Q. Um, shut up, Q is <laughs> quite good. Um, yeah, best Q scene. I'm just trying to think. Remind me of some of the other ones. I know there was a lot in here Ahmed's Tea Party, the, the <laughs> no, Cowboy. Yeah. Balls. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to go with that. Balls cue. Bowlers 007. <laughs> I think I'll go with that for the cue scene. Um, and he wasn't even in Live and Let Die. And for the gadget, there's been some good ones. Um, inflatable Kananga. Um, <laughs> a lot of different ones. But to me, it has to be the Lotus. Just that underwater scene, the first time it hits the water is just... So good. Uh, shout out to Bond having a flashback on how to use the watch and wanting in Moonraker and wanting to get them in stores for Christmas. But the Lotus is just fantastic. Well, it's definitely not going to be Gondola turning into hovercraft. Um, that can go to fucking hell. Um, yeah, I I really am fond of the Spy Who Loved Me Q interaction. And it's not really a scene as such because it's only so very quick. But when he dr- delivers the Lotus... And he gets in the car and he's all like, have I ever let you down, Q, frequently, and shuts the door down. <laughs> like, I, I just love that whole little interaction between the two. And also, um, I think it's the same movie, isn't it, when it's like, successful mission 007, and he's like, you know, trying to make small talk with him. It's like, oh, okay, Q actually gives a shit. It's kind of like harking back to On a Majesty's Secret Service at the wedding. Like, oh, Q cares for Bond. Like, oh, this is nice. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm going with, even though it's barely a scene, I'm going with that. And for Gadget, um, camera with his name on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting decade for Gadgets. You, the, definitely the Lotus, for sure. Um, what about I, Connery's grapple hook up in the casino? That was quite cool. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, do we classify Connery's moon buggy? Even though it wasn't a no, that wasn't a Q one, so that's all right. Um, what about the floating bubble in the ocean? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I actually I like the um, even though it was stolen from Blofeld, the voice changer apparatus that Q has been developing for years. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I'll probably go with a Lotus as well. I mean, that's it's a car, but it's a gadget as well. I mean, come on, it's a freaking car submarine. Yeah, that's the obvious choice for the gadget, so really nothing to add on there. Um, I don't think anything comes close other than the magnetic watch, which we just had some fun bits with throughout the movie, you know, with M's 
spoon and uh, the Italian agent's zipper and, you know, trying to pull the canoe towards him. There was some fun stuff, but Lotus is still obvious for that. Uh, and I would consider that more of a gadget than a car because even though the car itself has some gadgets, I think it, we're all referring to the fact that when it turns into a submarine, which is, I think that makes it a gadget more than a vehicle. But uh, favorite Q scene, I thought I was going to be the only one who even remembered it because it is more of an M scene than anything else. But hands down, man with the golden gun, shut up Q scene. Uh, <laughs> I've talked a lot throughout the decade of um, how the difference with Q this time is that he just became a know-it-all, uh, especially in the Guy Hamilton movies. He was always just, you know, when somebody's saying something like the Solex, he's like, no, the Solex agitator. Like, he has so much attitude in the 70s. And the fact that the scene, again, partly because of M, but also because of Desmond Llewellyn and Q, you know, where you don't even have Bond telling the story. It's like, that's really all there is to tell, sir. And the look on M's face. And then... Q saying like, well, it's actually completely plausible, you know, we have the, the flying car. <laughs> Such a good scene. I love that one. Uh, it is interesting in a scene with, or a decade with so much Q and having him integrated into the plot so much and he's at so many of these briefings for no reason, like I said, the car mechanic in the Oval Office, but we didn't have the big Q scenes, like the lab scenes that much. I think Moonraker and Spy Love Me were really the only ones. Um, but it is nice to have Q in these other scenes and the briefing ones and, you know, the shut up Q. I think that really shows how Desmond Lone was able to do something different in this decade. I think we have to bring up as well um, a genuine Felix Leiter. How can we not include that? Um, so maybe we jump the gun on talking about the Lotus, but um, let's talk about the best vehicle battle. I feel like there was quite some good ones in this decade, actually. Mm-hmm. Very good ones in this decade. Moon buggy chase, um, boat chase, car chase in uh, Man with the Golden Gun featuring... Car chase in Vegas. In car Diamond chase in Vegas, yes, of course. Um, car chase Space in chase. Spy Who Loved Me featuring the Lotus. Um, we had bus chase as well. Um, and then Moonraker, fucking gondola chase and boat chase and... <laughs> Um, no real air chases in t- in the seventies. Um, it was sort of all. Oh, my girlfriend, little Nelly. Yeah, we've we've lost that. Um, look, I'm going to give it to because I know uh, no will give it to the boat chase. I'm going to give it to the. Uh, I'm going to give it to the moon buggy. I love the moon buggy chase. Like, stop <laughs> it. It's what. It's, it's fun. It involves a moon buggy. Like, it's still more realistic than Gondola Chase in Moonraker. So, I'm going, stuff it, screw it. This is my Noah Grove, Diamonds Are Forever number one moment. Moon buggy chase and Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, I'm going to give you an incredible one on this. That groan. Although I will say, I mean, uh, we're sitting here making fun of Ben, and I think the obvious answer for this is the Lotus underwater, uh, a floating submarine car, and we're talking about the moon buggy as being stupid. Uh, <laughs> that just shows how good the Spy Love Me is, though, that that Lotus submarine sequence can be so good. Uh, everybody loves the Lotus, and as I said, I mean, I don't think it's really an attractive car, but I don't really care for cars anyways. Uh, I barely even like driving, but 
nobody watches the spy who loved me in the lotus and says i can't wait to see the driving part they all want to see it go underwater uh, and the sequence itself on its own let's just say bond was in a submarine let's say it was like for your eyes only or something like that the sequence holds up even if it wasn't a car underwater i mean there's so much good stuff going on in there i'll also give the honorable mention on this to man with the golden gun because i think we all agreed that the car chase in diamonds are forever was so good and without the slide whistle, I think that the man with golden gun car chase really does top it, you know, because we have him going in and out of the streets with so many cars around. Even so with JW? It's not like, yeah, well, yeah, I guess you have to take JW out as well. But <laughs> so this will be an honorable mention with several stipulations. Um, <laughs> the car chase itself, just being in such crowded streets and in the middle of broad daylight, it's not like three o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas when there's two cars. Uh, Man with Golden Gun did it so well, but obviously Lotus is number one on this. Yeah, um, even pre-submerging Lotus, um, I love the like driving along the side of the road and Jaws is in the car behind them and then the helicopter comes up with Naomi off to the side and um, the car coming off into the building and, ah, oh, my pasta is ruined! Um, <laughs> all that stuff that's happening there, so... I think it's just a brilliant chase. I would argue the 70s is better than the 60s for all this. Um, we laugh at Ben, but I, I love the moon buggy too. I'm not going to put it number one. I'm not an idiot, but the moon buggy <laughs> is a lot of fun. You put diamonds are forever at number one. You are an idiot. <laughs> uh, don't make me bring up... We, we've established, idiot. although... We have established that Ben's dad's an idiot, so yeah. it must have just... <laughs> oh, we're all next generation, <laughs> But yeah, moon buggy that cannot be caught, even though it's going like ten kilometers an hour, um, followed by ATV, followed by chase in Las Vegas in the night. It's just so cool. Um, so we're probably the only podcast that defends the moon buggy chase. Um, yeah. Man with the gun gun is so good, but yeah, stipulations of uh, JW and it's just just ridiculous. Um, Lotus, I absolutely love. Gondola, I don't love, but I do love the Amazon chase. Um, was that the east or the west of the Amazon, Ben? Um, but, yeah, I think it has to go, even though the real answer is the Lotus, I just the boat chase in Live and Let Die is like 20 minutes long and it's just so epic, um, crashing into weddings and Adam being blown up and just jumping over roads and JW when he's funny. Yeah, JW not just randomly being in Thailand. Um, so I have to give it to Live and Let Die. Um, shout out to JW's uh, brother-in-law, Billy Bob. All right, so we're uh, conveniently into the final section of this bit, and the final question is, what is your favourite final battle, the best climax of the movie that doesn't involve James Bond having a climax? Uh, this one's a little bit tougher because the 70s had a lot more of these big climaxes followed by a smaller climax. You know, Spy Love is a really good example of that. The, the whole battle on the Lipris is one thing, and then you have the sinking of Atlantis, which is much smaller. Uh, Moonraker space battle, I still love that one. Uh, what else we have? Diamonds Are Forever is obviously the bottom on this one. It's a terrible climax. Uh, Live and Let Die, as I said, I like the first half, not the second. Man with a Golden Gun has the 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 showdown, the fun house, which, yeah, I think that one is really strong. 
I think if we're going to include the battle on the Lipris in there, then I would go with the spy who loved me. Um, but I think that's really a questionable one because there's still a significant amount of movie afterwards. And I think the climax really is the sinking of Atlantis and the fight with Jaws. So uh, I think I'll go with the man with the golden gun on this. Uh, Scaramanga, as we said, is a great villain. And in the middle of a fun house with clowns and everything else like that, uh, you know, the, all the weird things in the fun house put aside, Scaramanga is still a scary villain. And we already talked about how good the whole countdown was, you know, the taking the steps in opposite directions in the showdown. So, uh, yeah, I love Man with Golden Gun Climax. Um, for me, not Diamonds Are Forever, and though I love Diamonds Are Forever, not Living Let Die, I found that underwhelming. Man with the Golden Gun is a unique one, which I enjoy, but there's still something a bit lacking there. Um, and... I defend Moonraker's final if you just accept that whatever, it's a space battle, bring on the lasers and you just don't go into it so much, then I really enjoy Moonraker. I think that only leaves Spy Love Me, not including the Atlantis shot him in the dick scene with Jaws fight, which is still cool, the Jaws fight, but the tanker battle is just so epic. It's just so much going on. There's trying to stop bombs and missiles being launched and people being shot everywhere. I bet you anything we got our kill count wrong because there was just so much happening there. So um, I think it has to be the spy love me, which it seems to be the answer for a lot of these final questions this decade. Which is interesting because obviously we all had it. Well, Colin had number three and you and I both had it number one. So, um, yeah, obviously, the stand- standout film for the decade. I am going to go with The Man with the Golden Gun. I just like it how it is unique. Colin, I think you said it was unique, and I love these, like, one-on-one little battles. And, yeah, I know we saw it in the opening, but it's just it's interesting to see how Bond plays it differently to what's-his-face in the beginning of the film. Um and yeah, I just love that interaction. And we, we mentioned before, like, Scaramanga, very much a Bond equal. I love these villains who are like Bond equal. I'm a huge Trevelyan fan. So, like, you know, Scaramanga's up there and that, that sort of aspect of it. And I love the fun house. I love Knickknack's little running commentary. And um, even post-scene, I like the little fight in the boat. And that's no pun intended at Knickknack. So, yeah, it's... I'm going for Man with the Golden Gun, not to take away from the spy who loved me, because that obviously is very epic. And I'm probably the only one here who actually doesn't think Diamonds Are Forever finale is as bad as you two do. But, um, yeah, let's let's go Man with the Golden Gun. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Well, we talked about the bang-bang count in Spy Who Loved Me, which I didn't take notes on, so I take the blame for that. But let's just go over the entire decade, if you haven't, Ben. So let's summarize the... Mr. Kiss, Kiss... We got to the right order that time. Yay! Ooh, good singing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it helps we all have the itinerary in front of us here. <laughs> well, yes, I have. Um, ben, what do we have for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? All right. Well, uh, of course, if you listen to the 60s episode, we separated into decades, and I've also got it separated into bonds as well. Um, so, the 70s saw... A bit of a downturn in the kills. So we had 50 kills in the 70s, which was down from 83, uh, which we had in the 60s. So a 33 um, less kills in the 70s. Um, intimate encounters, kisses, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Bond had 12 in the 70s compared to 19 in the 60s. 
So uh, the swinging oh, 60s. Oh, he's slowing down. Slowing down a little bit in his old age is Roger. Well, there is also one less movie in the 70s as well. True, true. We had five as opposed to six. Martinis, he's um, obviously rehab back in Thunderball helped him because he only had two in the 70s. We had five in the 60s. And um, Joel, I'm proud of him. Having said that, though, he did like to say his name more in the 70s. Uh, seven Bond, James Bond, <laughs> compared to four in the 60s. Uh, so just quickly, the running total, if you missed it. It's very self-centered. Very much so. 133 <laughs> bo- uh, kills, 31 uh, kisses, seven martinis, and 11 Bond, James Bonds, where we're at. In terms of the actors, now, I haven't separated... I've just added Sean Connery's for uh, Diamonds Are Forever onto his... Overall, overall total. So if you want to actually know his 70s stats, just go look at our Diamonds Are Forever uh, count. So Sean Connery ends his career. And are we including Never Say Never Again with this, or are we going to do a little asterisk for that? Mm-hmm. That's different continuity, so... Okay, all right. Well, mm-hmm. in that case, Sean Connery... Sean Connery ends his Bond career, his official Bond career, on 84 kills, 17 kisses, four martinis, and three Bonds, James Bonds. Uh, Roger Moore currently, at about um, a tenth of his 7,000 James Bond films he was involved in, uh, 42 kills. Uh, so he's about half, literally half of Sean Connery's uh, kills, and he's, what, only done two less movies than Connery? Am I correct? Or three at this point? Mm-hmm. Two. Um, at four. No, I think two. So his kisses is at 11 um, compared to Connery's 17. Uh, two martinis compared to four for Connery. Although Roger Moore again likes saying his name more. Uh, six Bond James Bonds <laughs> compared to Connery's three. And uh, obviously George Lazenby, well, he was back in the 60s. So, yes. <laughs> so that's where we're at the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I've even got our. <laughs> Rankings, baby. What you heard, um, just in Good case. Scene. Thank you, thank you. Now we sort of, uh, obviously, the sixties was easy because we just went over our rankings. That's where we're at. But I've separated our seventies films, so I'm not going to go over all eleven of our rankings. I've got our five films here in order of how we ranked at the seventies. So, Colin, your five for the nineteen seventies. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, Live and Let Die, Moonraker, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Diamonds Are Forever. Would you change any of those in retrospect? Are you happy with, obviously, that five that you've got? No, I, I stand by that. Again, I'm just really surprised looking at it as a decade as a whole to see coming into this that I would have ever had Live and Let Die as my second favorite 70s movie. That's a big surprise to me. Uh, Noah, your five, The Spy Who Loved Me, Diamonds Are Forever, Moonraker, The Man With The Golden Gun, and Live and Let Die. I don't know why I'm like bagging you out for Diamonds Are Forever. I like Diamonds Are Forever. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm just, just following Colin's lead here. I'm going with the cool crowd. Uh, so I, you're... Say, I wouldn't change any of mine, but I, Man With The Golden Gun, Moonraker, I could give or take either of them. They kind of, I like them both equal. So my five, uh, the spy, we all end up with The Spy Who Loved Me on top. Uh, I've got Man with the Golden Gun second, Diamonds Are Forever third, Live and Let Die fourth, and Moonraker fifth. And I am happy with my five. So there you go. Now just on quickly on our rankings, because we're going to discuss our Hall of Fame, maybe our, what are we going to add, like a top one for the decade? Uh, so we're obviously going to be ranking the decades. Now in the 60s, we 
kept that clearly because we only had one decade to rank. So I'm going to be intrigued here to see how you two, like, does the 70s go above the 60s or does it go below it, Colin? It's definitely below it. Um, even if you look at my rankings, Spy to Love Me is easily my number one of the decade, and yet it's still behind Honor Majesty's Secret Service and From Russia with Love for me. And it was pretty close to Goldfinger, and, and that's nothing against Spy Who Loved Me, but that's the one real shining moment of this decade. Um, I'm probably going to be more down on the 80s, but 16, 60s is hands down uh, the better decade. Yeah, um, I am a huge defender of the 70s. I'm growing tired of people, oh, I don't watch the 70s, or I don't watch any Roger Moore film. Like Each to their own, but you suck. Um, the 70s was a great decade for Bond. Um, I love all these five films in each of their own right. Diamonds Are Forever is like that personal favourite of mine. Spider Love Me is maybe the best of all time. Um, I am one of the people who actually embraces the comedy that's introduced. I love kooky Bond. I love one-liners. And I think people need to stop taking themselves so seriously. In saying that, it's just 60s had Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So this is high, higher-class Bond here. So while I will be one of the bigger defenders of the 70s, um, come at me if you want to debate about the 70s, I have to probably say the 60s is better. But I don't think the 70s will be last in my overall rankings. I absolutely love the 70s as a bond decade. I'm so interested in how we're doing this because I feel weird saying... Well, I, I mean, I'm the same with, you know, I love sort of your kooky Bond, and, of course, I've just ranked Moonraker as the worst. But, like, it's <laughs> it's it's interesting that... I feel I've got that contradictory opinion because, yeah, I, I absolutely fucking love the outlandish Bond films and the over-the-top kookiness. Um, and the 70s had that. I, I looked, went over my rankings, and I was sort of very 50-50 with my top six. I think I had three in, from the 60s and three from the 70s in at least my top half. So it's it's going to be interesting how this turns out in the long run but i thought about it long and hard and if i went into this before all these rewatches i probably would have said oh i would have put the 60s last based purely on you know my opinions a lot of that sort of older movies and that but of course you know new love for them having rewatched them and discussing them um i like the 70s as a decade um it's i'm going to be so torn in the next decade because i feel i'm going to be the only defender of the 80s when we get to it but yeah, I think in the in the end of the day, 60s has to go above the 70s just because of what it is. Um, I love my kooky, I love my over-the-top, but the 60s is just too good of a decade and too iconic of uh, a period of Bond films that it has to just take a notch above the 70s for sure. I will say that my bottom two are 60s films um, and all the 70s ones are above... Uh, two 60s ones, but I just think uh, the original trilogy and Majesties cancel it out, um, the bottom Thunderbolt and You Only Live Twice. Um, but it's a close one. So I guess what we now can move into is a little bit of this. Oh, it's the whole, the whole with the classic scenes. Oh, 
fantastic singing of Hall of Fame. Um, been practicing. Now, we're not going to go through everything here, I feel. It's more so, I guess, what is our standout or our top three for the decade, really, isn't it, in regards to... Didn't we pick one per film, if I remember correctly? I think that would be correct, Noel Groves. Uh, we know what we talk about in our own <laughs> <laughs> Again, you didn't turn up to the pre-production meeting. <laughs> oh, fucking McClory! I blame him. Um... <laughs> But, yeah, so, okay, going over each of the films, uh, do we all remember what our Hall of Fame moments are? I've got them in front of me, if we don't remember. I cannot remember Diamonds Are Forever. Okay, so our three to choose from for Diamonds Are Forever, we had the Las Vegas car chase, the fight with Peter Franks in the elevator, and the Bambi and Thumper fight. <laughs> what a sad movie that was. Oh. <laughs> yeah, how did we have Bambi and Thumper in the James Bond Hall of Fame? Well, <laughs> Vegas car chase. Vegas car chase. I yeah, yeah, I would. Oh, I'd go with that for yeah. living let die. Yep. All right. Being thump. That takes it. Um, live and let die. We have the boat chase, the escape on top of the crocodiles, and the introduction of Roger Moore as James Bond in his apartment. I am just going to jump in here. Boat and chase. I, I want to go with the crocodiles. Yeah, oh, I want to go with the crocodiles too. Ha ha! Yeah, I voted. <laughs> 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 that, was so, that was so like grade three. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, in Man with the Golden Gun, we have the car chase with the flip, final duel on the beach and the final funhouse scene, and the conclusion with Knickknack on the junk. Has to be. Yep. I was going to say the duel. No. I'm going for. <laughs> Yeah, can't chase. All right. Can't flip. Spy Who Loved Me, uh, Ski Jump, Lotus Into Water, and Ooh. The Pyramids in Cairo. Oh. <laughs> I think Did it has to be ditch the Did we all of the other Hall of Fames? Yeah, <laughs> just have these three. Yep. <laughs> the 70s Hall of Fame is just purely Spy Who Loved Me. I, I think Parachute, but The Lotus is definitely up there too. Got to be Parachute. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yep. And Pyramids! And Moon- <laughs> Moonraker, we have the opening skydiving scene, Bond attempts re-entry, and the cable car scene. Skydiving. Yeah. Uh, I would almost cowboy. argue the cable car. <laughs> Not Bond becomes you see the cowboy. But Fuck I don't off really care because this doesn't actually count for anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually put this up on our article, by the way. But, you know, I'll, I'll look... Um, <laughs> Fucking cable car. I'll go with Colin again. I'll be cool. Okay. I just didn't want to mention cable. Um. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Oh, Noah. All right. So last but not least, let's just, we gave a quick preview in the Moonraker episode on Theorize Only, but let's preview the 80s decade as a whole. Uh, what uh, what do we really expect to talk about or uh, to see in the 80s? Uh, What things are going to be new to the 80s? What are we looking forward to? What are we dreading throughout the entire decade of the 80s for your eyes only? Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. Um, to, to me, there's kind of like two more eras. There's the original trilogy of more. Um, they all have a similar feel. I know Spy Love Me is a bit different, but it, Spy Love Me feels more like those first two than the later ones in my eyes. And then there's... For your eyes only, Octopussy, Voodoo, Kill, which kind of um, 
seems like its own trilogy, probably because of John Glenn and the eighties. But and then Moonraker is an anomaly out of this world. It doesn't count. It's that middle one. Um, and a lot of people seem to enjoy the second half of more that last second trilogy more. Um, but yeah. I enjoy these films, but I can tell you right now, none of these will probably make my top five. Um, I just, there's something about the second half of Moore's era that I'm not a huge fan of, even though a lot of people prefer it over the first three. Um, but I'm still excited to talk about it. I've already watched Fear Eyes Only, so it's going to be fun. I expect we'll talk about... I'm not going to say less comedy, but different styles of comedy and different styles of kookiness, some very embarrassing moments coming up. Um, and I love more. I don't want to stop talking about him, but probably the one thing I'm looking forward to the most is Dalton era, just because we get to another bond. Um, and I'm weirdly looking forward to, but at the same time dreading never say never again. I think it's going to, we've never really said goodbye to Connery because this one's been looming. So that should be interesting because it will be a unique episode for us. But Dalton, I'm looking forward to. Um, and yeah, it's never been my favorite decade, but I'm open to changing my opinion. So I, I'm still very excited to move into a new era. We are really getting into Ben Waterworth Central right about now. Um, I love me Great. the 80s. There goes our credibility again. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Ben O'Toole Central. I, I have probably seen, from this point on, probably a few to a kill onwards, these are the films I have seen the most. And, look, Fury Eyes Only, I love. Octopussy, it has been so long since I've seen it, I barely remember it. Um, never Say Never Again, I've never seen it. I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> I have never seen it. I own it, but I've never watched it. Um, a View to a Kill, I love. It is just, even though Bond should just be like at least 50 years younger, it is just something about it. I mean, Christopher <laughs> Walken is a Bond villain. Come on, people. How can you not love that? Mayday, like, oh, it's so good. And then we get into Dalton and like, look, I am going to defend my man Timothy so much because like, again, precursor, Craig gets all this love for this gritty, tough as nails approach to the character of Bond. Dalton did it before Craig. I'm going to say Dalton did it better. Shoot me now, but whatever. I love Timothy. I love The Living Daylights. I love License to Kill. I'm the only person on the planet that I think loves it. It's such a good film. It's such a good era. We were robbed of having Timothy as only two Bond, two films as Bond. Um, and all the while, I love the 80s. And at the end of the 80s, we are right at the Brosnan era. Bring on the 80s. Uh, I'm going to bring a bit of a different argument on Timothy Dalton uh, and his movies. I will say that Living Daylight does take uh, a bit of a bump for me each time I watch it. Not too big, though. I'm, I'll be honest. I think I love the first two movies of the 80s here, Fear Eyes Only and Octopussy. Uh, we'll see if that holds up on this rewatch. And the next two, give them or take them, License to Kill, I am going to be... Ugh, I'm dreading that one already, but at the same time, it might be fun just to have a couple of our arguments throughout it. Uh, yeah, I think that the 80s is very different. As I said, all of the movies have a bit of a similar feel to them. John Glenn brought consistency to the Bond movie. Um, you could even look at Terrence Young, and his movies feel very different from each other, and the John Glenn movies all kind of fit in the same universe, I feel. 
there's going to be some improvements in here. I think that um, we'll get uh, a, a lot more unique action scenes in the 80s from what we've had. Uh, they kind of introduced the stunts in the 70s, but the action scenes really become very elaborate in this one. Uh, some things won't work. Bond's going to be a clown at one point, and <laughs> Timothy Dalton's going to be... Timothy Dalton's going to be in License to Kill. Uh, <laughs> but... Whoa. This isn't a country club, Colin Hilding. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I mean, I think it'll be a fun decade to watch. I, I don't watch these movies nearly as much as I watch the 60s, 70s, or 90s, or modern yeah, ones. But at the same time, I have seen most of these enough times to almost know them by heart. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to see if any of the arguments that are made on Ben's part can actually sway me on some of these later movies. Which I doubt they will. Well, come on, come on, Colin. How many about I... ben here, We've Colin. had, what, 11, you know, 15 of these episodes now, 11 field ones, and probably I've been successful in about two of my arguments. So I'm not <laughs> holding out hope. He introduced himself as Ben O'Toole, Colin. Like, come on. <laughs> if I'm successful in changing your mind in the 80s, bring on Die Another Day because you're putting that in your top 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the 80s would be a fun decade, and the 70s was definitely a fun one to recap. Uh, overall, uh, do we have closing thoughts on the 70s we just want to talk about really quickly? Last mentions uh, of anything before we leave it behind forever? Yeah, I'm just sad, bittersweet, because I am a huge defender of the 70s. Uh, very fun to revisit films like Spy Love Me, uh Moonraker, and maybe we changed some people's opinion on Man with the Golden Gun because we were all quite in agreement there, even though there was some flaws with it. But uh, yeah, like Colin, I don't watch the '80s ones nearly as much as I watch the '60s and '70s. And uh, some of these ones, Spy Love Me and Moonraker, are some I've seen the most out of any of them. So it was a really fun decade, but I'm ready to move on at the same time. It is, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And the seventies is campy. It's it's O T T. It's got Moonraker in it for fuck's sake. Um, you know, I've I've enjoyed talking about it. It's been a lot of a lot of fun times, a lot of good times, a lot of bad times, and everything else in between. I just love the fact that we get to the end of each decade, and you just you look ahead. And you just get so excited for what's coming. And it's it's interesting with these because, as I think Noah said before, we're like at the halfway point basically now, with at least in one or two films. And we don't want these to end. They're going to end. I mean, you might be listening to these and we've already done all of them, so good for you. But at the time of recording this, we're... Hello, 2019. We're, we're looking forward to just continuing on with these. So, yeah, bring on the 80s. I will just say quickly, um, good night, good night, sleep well, my dear. No need to fear. Double R7 is here! Oh, oh, good head, good head, good head, my dear. Rosie Carver! Fuck off! <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, again, just give a final mention to the Bond girls of the 70s, which they didn't all work, but I think they all had personality. They were all fun, and uh, I, I really do like Rosie Carver and Mary Goodnight just for how funny they <laughs> we were. We know! <laughs> I, yeah, but there's 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 a, there's a reason for me bringing this up, and that's because the one thing that uh, I think entering the '80s, I'm not looking forward to so much is the Bond girls. I, I will agree that they become more complex characters, but 
that doesn't always necessarily mean better because just because they're more complex characters doesn't mean they have any personality. And that's what we're leaving behind in the 70s that I'm going to be sad is uh, a little bit of the quirkiness uh, for both the Bond girls and the villains and henchmen. They all become pretty generic after a while in the 80s, but uh, sad to see some of the eccentricness of the 70s go. Now are we ready to end? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's end this. All right. And that's it for the 70s decade. And uh, for the last time, I am not against fat people. <laughs> I am Colin. I am not against fat people. I'm Noah, and I hate snakes still after all this time. And I'm Ben, and I'm ready to rub my plenty of tool. <laughs> Nobody does it better. <laughs> Is that the end or... And cut!